Okay, well, welcome everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me to come and share with you tonight. As you've heard, my name is David Bates. I go to Holy Angels Byzantine Catholic Church. And uh, other important pieces of information about me, uh, I'm a co-host on a podcast, Pints with Jack, where every week, together with my co-host, we talk about C.S. Lewis, who is the Christian author and apologist. He's the guy that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. So we talk about that each week. Uh, if you would like to know more about that, just go to pintswithjack.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, at pintswithjack. I told you I was going to shamelessly promote everything I do. Uh, I also have a, a blog called restlesspilgrim.net. And there I write about sacred scripture, church history, and the topic that's particularly pertinent to tonight, which is apologetics, the defense of the Catholic faith. So just to kick things off, I'd like to start with a question. Who here has ever been challenged about their Catholic faith in any way? Belief in God, faith in Christ, some Catholic teaching, practice? Yeah, I think it's pretty universal. And uh, we, that's why we're here tonight. And the title for tonight's talk is Apologetics for the Confused. And this is normally the second talk in a two-part series. The first one's called Evangelism or Evangelization for the Terrified. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is, because this talk normally follows that one, I'm actually going to take some of that content, and that's what I'm going to begin with talking about. I'm going to talk about evangelization to begin with, and then we're going to switch and talk about apologetics, because you can't talk about apologetics before you've spoken about evangelization. And then we're going to talk about the different kinds of apologetics out there, the tools we've got available to us, and then I'm going to end by looking at some general principles for when we're doing apologetics. But if we're going to talk about talking to people about Jesus, we need to make sure that we keep talking to Jesus. So before we get started, let's begin with prayer. And I'd like to pray the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. So if you please join me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. St. Francis, pray for us. St. Justin Martyr, pray for us. St. Therese of Lisieux, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, we just asked St. Therese of Lisieux to pray for us. Does anyone know why? Does anyone know what she's the patron of? No. Like, and I'm looking for something else, because most saints have got like five things they're patrons of. She's the patron of missions. It's a little Carmelite nun, patron of missions. Uh, we also asked St. Justin Martyr to pray for us. Does anyone know what he's the patron of? The subject tonight. He's the yeah. There you go. Now for that, you get a free book. These are both signed by the author. You have them. Oh right, fine. Uh, uh, do you have Matt Frad's book? Okay. If Joe's gonna be here, I've got to know. I've got to pull out my larger collection. And just as a little PSA. 
Uh, I tend to give away books when people ask me interesting questions in my talk. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> so, the talk that you didn't hear, Evangelism for the Terrified. And I want to begin this by asking another question. What is the purpose of the church? I mean, what's it here for? The short answer is, it's here to evangelize, to tell people about Jesus and the church which he founded. Back in 1975, Pope Pius VI wrote a letter to the bishops, and it was called Evangelii Nuntiandi. That's the Latin title. But for those of you who aren't fluent Latin speakers, the English title is called Evangelization in the Modern World. And the quotation is on your sheet. He says that the task of evangelizing all people constitutes the essential mission of the church. It is the vocation proper to the church, her deepest identity. He says, he says the church exists in order to evangelize. That's a bit better. So that is the purpose of the church, to evangelize. So what's the consequence of that? What's the consequence for every single Catholic? It means that every single Catholic is a missionary and an evangelist. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how young you are, if you are a baptized Catholic, then you are a missionary in your day-to-day -day life. <laughs> Put simply, Jesus is calling you to change the world. Has anyone here seen the X-Men movies? If you haven't seen them, they're a series of mostly good movies about people with superhero powers. And they're led by a guy called Professor Xavier. He's English and he has the ability to read minds. Well, I am also English and I also have the ability to read minds. Now you didn't know it, but when I was saying earlier that every single one of you is called to be a missionary and evangelist, I was reading your minds. And I heard, what, me? An evangelist, a missionary? Other people, maybe, but not me. I wouldn't know what to say, I wouldn't know what to do. I don't know my faith well enough. Someone might ask me a question I don't know the answer to. I'm right, yeah? <laughs> now, these fears, they're very understandable. And honestly, I have exactly the same thoughts run through my mind every single time I'm called upon to share my faith or give a talk. There's this wonderful little monologue that goes through. It's like, I wonder if it's too late to cancel. But what's the reason for this? I think the essential reason is that we're afraid that we're not up to the task, that the challenge is beyond us. But the good news is I'm not the one calling you to be a missionary. I'm not the one calling you to be an evangelist. The person doing that is Jesus. And if he's the one that's doing it, then that means that when you step out of the boat, he's going to be there. My favorite, my favorite scripture verse is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Check your worksheets. The situation is St. Paul has been praying to God and, uh, and the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And I mention this because 
If you think that you're not really up to being an evangelist, a missionary, that you don't really have what it takes, that's a good thing. Because it means that there's more room for God's grace and there's more room for the Holy Spirit to work through you. But what actually is evangelization? I'd say it's anything that draws somebody closer to Jesus. Something that lets them know that God made them, God loves them, and God wants to be in a relationship with them through his body, the church. And we evangelize through both word and deed. We evangelize through what we say, but particularly by what we do. Because a life that is lived in stark contrast to the standards of the world, that speaks much more powerfully than any moralizing sermon is ever going to. Again, Pope Paul VI, he said, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And if he does listen to teachers, it is because they are witnesses. So how we live our lives is extremely important. However, we've got to make sure that we don't delude ourselves. Because for years, I was the guy that said, oh yeah, um, I evangelize through the way I live my life. Anyone ever done that? And that was my standard answer for a long time until one of my friends asked me a question. How? He said, David, what is it about your life that makes you think that when people see you, they see Jesus? What is so different about the way that you live your life that people start to reassess their own? I was like a deer in headlights. I, I was com caught completely off guard. I didn't know what to say. Uh, so I had a little think and then I came up with it. I am polite. <laughs> I say please and thank you all the time. Now, my friend wasn't very impressed with this answer. So I thought again and I, I came up with it. I am generally nice. He didn't look convinced. Either that that would be enough to transform somebody else's life or really that I was generally nice. Those of you who know me, I can be kind of a jerk sometimes. Anyone dating me in this audience needs to keep their mouth shut. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that being nice and polite is a bad thing. It's good. It's just not enough. And not only that, when we talk about preaching with our actions, at some point we have to use words. Again, from Pope Paul VI, he says, the good news proclaimed by the witness of life, so what we do, sooner or later has to be proclaimed by the word of life. There is no true evangelization if the name, the teaching, the life, the promises, and the kingdom, and the mystery of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, are not proclaimed. Actions are important, but we can't think that we'll never have to speak up. So then the next question is, how do we evangelize? And when I'm doing the other talk, Evangelization for the Terrified, this is where I spend most of my time. But since this is just a preparation to talk about apologetics, I'm going to be pretty brief. But a key point I want to communicate to you is that you are all already being evangelists. I can absolutely guarantee it. Have any of you seen an amazing movie? Gone to a restaurant and eaten some amazing food? Did you check in on Facebook? Did you post pictures on Instagram? Did you talk to your friends about it afterwards? Joe has not shut up about Endgame for weeks. <laughs> now we're naturally evangelists in these areas. Why? Why do we so easily tell somebody about an amazing movie we've seen or amazing food that we've eaten? 
It's just for the simple reason that we think their life would be better if they hear what we have to say. And so really the challenge is simply to be an evangelist, but for Jesus, not just for food and movies. And really that should be far easier because Jesus calls us on an adventure that is far greater than any movie that we're ever going to see. And he invites us to a mo- and he invites us to a meal that's far greater and better than any restaurant's going to be able to provide. He gives us his own body and blood in the Eucharist. Do I think Catholicism is true? Do I think that I actually have something to share with the world? And do I think that the lives of other people, both now and in eternity, would be better if they were Catholic? If I can't answer yes to all of those questions, I'm gonna have a tough time as an evangelist. How am I gonna convince others when I don't truly believe it myself? If you want to evangelize, my main suggestion is to pray. Every morning, ask for a divine appointment. Ask God to put somebody in your way that you'll get to share a little bit of your your spiritual life, a little bit of your faith with them. And not only is that going to likely improve the opportunities that you're going to have, it's going to make you ready to seize those opportunities when they happen. How many times have you walked away from somebody kicking yourself that you had an opportunity to share with them a little bit of hope, a little bit of the gospel, and you didn't take it because you weren't ready. You were caught off guard. So it, it makes us ready to share. Although I do have to say, I'm not talking about crowbarring Catholicism into every conversation. I think we've all had that at some point. It's not like I'm at work and I'm going to go to the water cooler and I ask one of my uh, cubicle mates, hey, I'm gonna get some water, would you like some? Oh, by the way, do you know who walked on water? Jesus, that's who. Hey, what are your thoughts on transubstantiation? I think we can do a little better than that. But the bottom line is that to be an evangelist means to live a joy-filled Catholic life. And sometimes that means living counterculturally, standing out from the crowd, living a life less ordinary. But who wants to be ordinary? This kind of life will prompt people to ask questions. And when they ask questions, then you can talk to them about Jesus. And all of this is fine and great, right up until the point that we meet some resistance. We might speak to somebody about the faith and they might raise objections. I think this is what a lot of us are scared of. We're afraid that we're gonna be challenged or even worse, ridiculed. And I'm afraid to say that because of that, a lot of people don't even try. And that's a shame because this is where apologetics comes in. So what is apologetics? Apologetics has nothing to do with apologizing, saying you're sorry, which is a very good thing because I'm not very good at that. Maria's here, she knows. Yeah, I very rarely have the need to apologize. So I just don't get the chance to practice, you know? But apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, and it means defense. And the classic text for this is 1 Peter 3.15. Our first Pope says, always be prepared to make a defense. In the Greek, apologia. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. 
So that means if you're an apologist, you're someone who gives a reply, a response, a defense for what you believe in. And if you're a good apologist, then you do it with gentleness and reverence. Catholicism is not a religion of blind faith. It's a religion where faith and reason come together. And in scripture, we often find that St. Paul went about giving a defense for the Christian faith. We read in the Acts of the Apostles that he would dispute with the Jews in the synagogue and the pagans in the marketplace. And this is a pattern we find all throughout Christian history. In the second century, we have St. Justin Martyr, patron saint of? Very good. <laughs> and we have St. Augustine in the fifth century, St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, and in the 21st century, we've got the folks at Catholic Answers. You've got these guys writing books. Trent Horn, Carlo Broussard. Ask me interesting questions and you can get a signed copy. But how does apologetics relate to evangelization? Because this is really important. Because apologetics is one of the tools in evangelization. And its purpose is to clear away obstacles, is to clear away objections so people can discover the truth. But it's really worth pointing out that it's not the only tool in evangelization. It's not the sum total of evangelization, it's not the sum total of the Christian faith, because some people, when they discover apologetics, they get a little over-enthusiastic, and they think that they can argue people into the church, that they can keep beating them over the head with arguments until they finally give in and sign the RCIA form. <laughs> When you have a shiny new hammer, everything looks like a nail. Wow. <laughs> I was actually going to do a Thor reference earlier. I was going to say, you know, if you have a hammer, you have to be worthy to, 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 to wield it. <laughs> well, you're welcome. So, where might you find yourself needing to use apologetics? When might you need to give a defense for your faith? And I'm asking, open question. In the bar. In the bar. On Facebook. On Facebook, <laughs> social media, absolutely. Relationships. Relationships, yeah. Relationships, yep. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. The DMV line. <laughs> People you're married to, yes. What about Saturday morning? Hello, sir. Can I tell you about the uh, <laughs> Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith? Or, so the, the Mormons come over, the Jehovah's Witnesses come over. I'm actually quite surprised nobody's mentioned one other place. You quite often have to go into apologetics. Well, <laughs> good point. <laughs> it, it depends on your church, but sure. Uh, I was thinking the Thanksgiving table. You know, you, you talk about religion at, at, at over the main course, and then you discuss politics over dessert. You know, it's how you have a very calm, pleasant, peaceful Thanksgiving. Okay, so those are the different times you might do it. What kind of worldviews might you encounter when you have to do this? What, what, what are some other belief systems that people might have? Relativism. Relativism, mm-hmm. So there's no real truth. What else? Mm -hmm. Scientism, the only true truth, the only knowledge we can possibly have is anything that the scientific method has proved to be true. What else? We actually mentioned them earlier. Yeah, Protestants. Yeah, so Protestantism, and there's lots of different kinds of Protestants. Not all Protestants believe the same thing. There isn't a uniformity of belief. What else? 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Atheism. Yeah, atheism, agnosticism, Islam. You've also got the quasi-Christian groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Kind of the cults. Mm-hmm. People who said, I'm religion. Yeah. Yes, the, just the disillusioned. So those are the different situations, and we've talked about the different audiences. What are the tools that are available to you when you're having these discussions? I'd say we've really got four. We've got logic, we've got science, we've got scripture, and we've got history. These are the things that we draw on, and which one we draw on will depend on who we're speaking to. For example, you're not gonna quote the Bible to prove to an atheist that there is a God, because they don't care what the Bible says. And what I now like to do is now look at the different kinds of apologetics we have and see how we can deploy some of these tools. So apologetics can be divided into four main areas, at least in my mind. There's first of all moral apologetics. And this deals with right and wrong, moral questions. You then have theistic apologetics. And this relates to the existence of God. And in this talk, I'm going to spend a little bit more time talking about that than I am the other areas, just because I think it's an area in which we're often unprepared. Next up is Christian apologetics. This relates to Jesus and the doctrine of Christianity. And then lastly, we've got Catholic apologetics. And this focuses on the doctrines which are distinctly Catholic, that aren't shared among our other Christian brothers and sisters. So, first one, moral apologetics. This is all about those hot button issues. Uh, contraception, abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, pretty much anything that is liable to get people angry fairly quickly. But before you can even start talking about some of those issues, you'll actually have to deal with some people who deny truth even exists. Joe mentioned it earlier. They'll claim that there's actually no such thing as right and there's no such thing as wrong. And it'll usually be communicated through saying something like, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. This is relativism, moral relativism. And to someone who holds this, our best tool is logic. Because relativism is self-refuting. Because it's making a truth claim that there are no truth claims. It's making an absolute statement that there are no absolute statements. A system which is self-refuting cannot possibly be true. So that was moral apologetics. Theistic apologetics, so this relates to the existence of God. And once again, our common ground is logic. A couple of years ago, I walked the Camino de Santiago. Has anyone here walked it? Okay, so it's a pilgrimage route all the way across Spain. Took me about 36 days. One of the happiest periods of time in my life. And as I was walking the Camino, I actually met an atheist, as you do when you're on a religious pilgrimage. But we ended up having breakfast together at a cafe and we started talking about religion. And he told me that he was an atheist because of science. And he specifically identified evolution and the Big Bang. And so I explained to him, actually, that you can be a Catholic in good standing and believe in evolution. In fact, the church's position is that this might have been one of the mechanisms that God used to explain the, how our bodies are formed. That's a possibility. But the Big Bang? I asked him if he knew who was the first person who proposed the Big Bang. It was Georges Lemaitre, the scientist. Or, as I would know him, Father Georges Lemaitre. He was a Catholic priest. So I said, on behalf of the Catholic Church, you're welcome, science. <laughs> and he asked me what evidence I saw for the existence of God. 
And I offered one of many arguments for the existence of God. This is one of my favorites. It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. It's two premises and a conclusion. First premise, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Does that seem reasonable? Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Things don't just happen. Second premise, the universe began to exist. We're back at the Big Bang Theory again. Okay, all right, so whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. The logical conclusion is therefore the universe has a cause. Now you might hear that and think, what's that got to do with God? Well, we can now ask questions about this cause. If when the universe comes into existence, time, space, and matter, all these come into existence, the thing that creates them can't be any of those things. It's gotta be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. Since it's eternal, it also has to be personal in order to bring this thing into existence. And it also has to be immensely powerful to bring into existence everything, time, space, and matter. So I said, does that sound familiar? What do we normally call something that is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, personal, and all-powerful? Kind of sounds like God, or at the very least, a thick enough wedge of God to disprove atheism. We're not yet at the trinity of Christianity, but we're far enough along the way to point to a creator. And I went on to point out that the universe that we experience the odds of that happening is astronomically low. It's equivalent of just picking a, a, a random atom in the entire universe because it seems to have been set up, fine-tuned for existence, for life to, to, to flourish. And when we see design, we typically infer a designer. This is called the fine-tuning argument. There's a more formal developed version, but I try not to always speak in syllogisms to people. Now, we talked a little bit about morality as well, because I've often had atheists tell me, you don't need God to be good. And in many ways, they are absolutely right. There are many atheists who are good and quite honestly, put Christians to shame. However, what does it mean when they talk about good? Because without God, the whole idea of good and evil, it loses its objectivity. Goodness becomes purely relative to either the individual or the society. And what's the problem with that? We've had individuals and societies who have done some horrific things. Typical example is to point to Hitler and the Holocaust. Can we say that what they did was wrong and evil? Or is it just simply a matter of opinion that we just don't like it? I think instinctively we all say, no, this is wrong and objectively wrong. And if there are objective moral truths, that points to a truth giver. If there are objective moral laws, it points to a moral law giver. These things have to be rooted in something that transcends us, like God. And this is called the moral argument for God. Honestly, there are, there are many more of these, very philosophically rigorous, but I'm not gonna go into them now. I just wanted to say that there are these arguments available. And when I had this conversation with this guy, a lot of this was new to him. He never encountered somebody who had put forward some irrational defense for the existence of God. Now, I don't want to end this section on theistic apologetics without mentioning the problem of evil, because it's a really powerful argument against the existence of God, at least emotionally. Intellectually, I don't think it's that strong. 
And the argument basically goes like this. If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, why is there evil? Isn't it just more logical to conclude that he doesn't exist? Now, in order to respond to this, we've got to actually ask what we mean by evil. Because evil isn't a thing. It's a privation. It's an absence. Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And if things aren't the way they're supposed to be, that means that there's a way that they should be. That, that, there, is, that there is a plan to which that they are meant to accord. And so this actually turns out to be an argument in, fa in favour of God's existence. But someone might come back and say, okay, so maybe God exists, but doesn't this at least prove that he's not good? And I would first say, it's worth remembering that for such a thing as courage to exist, we have to live in a world where there is such a thing as danger. And we have to live in a world where we are free to choose either good or evil. I mean, even if we say just restricted evil to natural disasters, if human beings acted in the way that they are supposed to, that the moral law tells us to, the way Jesus tells us to, to love our neighbor as ourselves, if all humans did that, this earth would basically be a paradise. But the traditional Christian defense of this is also that goes on to say that God can allow evil if he's going to bring out a greater good, such as developing people who can be brave, developing people who can choose the good. The atheist objection only really works if you can show that there's no way that God could possibly bring out good from a bad situation. And when you bring this up, people will often then scramble for those situations that they think can't possibly be redeemed. And when that happens, I like to tell this story. There was once a farmer and he had a field with some horses in it. And one day somebody left the gate open and the horses bolted. And everyone in the field, everyone in the village said, oh, what a tragedy. And he said, maybe, we'll see. The next day the horses came back and they brought with them some wild horses. So he had even more than he had to begin with. And everyone in the village said, oh, what wonderful. And he said, maybe, we'll see. Then the next day, his son is breaking in one of the wild horses and the horse bucks him. He lands awkwardly and he breaks his leg. And everyone in the village says, oh, what a tragedy. What does he say? Maybe, we'll see. The next day, the army come through the village and conscript all of the young men to go and fight in a war. Now I tell this story because we are very poorly placed to really see the consequences of events and actions see the ripple effects through time and across people. Uh, Trent Horn, whose book I'll give away to people who ask me interesting questions, <laughs> he told a story once in a debate of, it happened, this happened a while ago, there was, a, there was a, a young lady who had the opportunity to visit America from England for the first time. And at the time this was very rare, so she was very, very excited. But her family wouldn't let her go. And so she railed and was angry, how dare they? This was the worst thing that had ever happened to her. Probably a teenager. <laughs> and that, I think we would all say, well, that sounds like a sucky thing. But what if I told you that she was going to America from England by boat? And what if I told you that boat was called the Titanic? Now, on the plus side, she gets to meet Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> But you see just how in that little example, 
she didn't know how this was actually going to turn out. And actually, Trent was very grateful that she didn't go on that trip because he ended up marrying one of that lady's descendants. And also, this is where the Christian gospel really shines. Hello, yes. Just to bring that illustration home with the Titanic, mm-hmm. my brother, who lives in Los Angeles, but whose company headquarters was in New York, lost his job the Friday before 9-11. He was scheduled to be in that building. It just shows it's very hard for us to be able to judge, was this a bad thing? Or even if it was a bad thing, what could God possibly work through this? But as I said, this is where really where the gospel shines. In response to the problem of pain, Christians can point to the cross because we can show something that from the outside looks like a failure, looks like the worst possible thing, looks like the greatest injustice. But through this, God redeemed the world. So that was, uh, so that was moral apologetics, theistic apologetics, Christian apologetics. I couldn't quite decide what to talk about here. I was going to give a defense of uh, Christ's resurrection. We can talk about that in Q&A if you like. But instead, I'll just tell a quick story from my time when I was in Seattle. Uh, the engine had fallen out of my car, long story, and I had it taken to the shop to get fixed and the garage phoned me up and they told me that it's ready so I called an uber and was going to head down there to pick up my car and as I opened the door I heard Arabic chant I was sure as I could be this was probably Islamic chant it was probably the Quran and I ended up falling into conversation with my driver and over the course of that conversation I was really impressed he was ready for me The guy sitting next to him, he was now telling him about the issues that he saw with Christianity, why I should accept Islam. He even had some leaflets ready in his glove box to give me. (laughs) And over that short little drive, I had a little bit of time to respond to some of the questions that he had. I got to explain why we can trust the New Testament, what Christians actually believe about the Trinity. But I'll just always remember and be really impressed by a guy who is ready to share his faith and to communicate it very clearly. So lastly, Catholic apologetics. When it comes to speaking with non-Catholic Christians, we have a significant amount in common. In particular, we've got the Bible. But probably the most common question you'll hear from Protestants about anything Catholic is, where is that in the Bible? Yeah. And there's a reason that Protestants will say that. It's because they typically believe in a doctrine called sola scriptura. It's the idea that the Bible and the Bible alone is the sole infallible rule of faith. Different denominations apply this doctrine a little bit differently, but that's the basic idea. And so we can now look at the tools that we can use to respond to this, because we can use logic, we can use scripture itself, and we can also use history. So first of all, logic. You can respond to the Protestant that Well, this is actually logically incoherent because the Bible doesn't actually tell you what books should even be in the Bible. So you have to immediately look to an external source to tell you that authoritatively. And then you're talking about an authoritative church and Sola Scriptura pretty much goes out the window. In fact, I would generally say the majority of Protestants that I ever speak to, they're usually 
they usually don't know where the Bible came from. And the short answer is it was discerned by Catholic bishops and confirmed by Catholic councils. And that's where we can draw upon church history to explain that. As well as raise the point that the early church didn't operate by sola scriptura. They believed that tradition was authoritative, that the church had authority to teach. And also that the Bible wasn't assembled for several centuries after the church was founded. And even then, a lot of people were illiterate. And lastly, we can actually use scripture itself by pointing out that nowhere in scripture does the Bible teach that it is the sole infallible rule of faith. It says a lot of verses about how great scripture is, that it's God-breathed, that it's important in the formation of men. Nowhere does it ever say the only place. In fact, it even points to the opposite. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, St. Paul equates his oral preaching with his letters. And just one last point, when if you ever speak to a Protestant, know your Bible, because they don't think that we know it. And I remember in my return to the church, that really slowed me down because I kept meeting Catholics who didn't seem to know the Bible at all. So we need to show them that we, that we love and revere sacred scripture. And if you want to know how to do that, go to restlesspilgrim.net. I've got another talk. <laughs> it's called How to Read the Bible Like a Catholic. So let's just run through some guiding principles for when we're doing this apologetics. Uh, because and I now want to like zoom out a little bit because on each of those areas, we could spend a week even on just on individual arguments for different doctrines, for different proofs of God. So, but I want to make this a little bit more general, so something that you can apply the next time you speak to somebody who holds a different worldview. So principle number one is listen. Everybody, please say listen. listen. This is what's great about Catholics. We're really good at saying things in unison together. <laughs> Probably the most important thing in apologetics is listening. And then listening means not interrupting. <laughs> because when you pay close attention to what someone is saying, then you know what their core issue is. And you don't waste time arguing against a position that they don't actually hold. And not only that, by listening, you actually earn the right to speak. And I suggest that when you do get your opportunity to respond, re-articulate, boil down the argument that you've just heard. Because if you ask someone, why are you not Catholic? They will probably speak for a while. So you need to boil down what that argument is before you respond to it. And it shows them that you've been paying attention and that you've actually understood them. And don't turn it into a lecture. Respond to questions that they've asked and ask your own questions. And that's principle number two. Ask questions. Everybody, please say, ask questions. Ask questions. No, 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 no. I said, ask <laughs> questions. So let's do this again. Ask questions. Doesn't that sound nicer? <laughs> That's why I'm here, people. Uh, questions are your friends. Don't tell people what they believe. Don't give them statements. Put a question mark at the end of it. It's the Socratic method. And you see Jesus using it throughout the Gospels. He asks people questions. And what's really good about asking questions is it allows people to discover truth for themselves. And it also reduces the pressure and the hostility. For example, rather than saying, well, that's a stupid argument, you might say, how might you respond to the objection that, and then say your objection? And rather than saying, you're just making all this up, you might say, on what are you basing this idea, sir? Honestly, some of the best questions you can ever ask are, what do you think, why do you think that, and how do you know it's true? And when you're asking questions, it takes you out of the hot seat. 
It puts you in the conversational driving seat. So, what was principle number one? Listen. What was principle number two? Oh, some people are learning, some people still belligerent. It's like 1776 all over again. <laughs> principle number three, remain calm. Everybody please say, remain calm. I very nearly changed this to keep calm and carry on, maybe next time. <laughs> when you're debating an issue, particularly one that's very close to your heart, it's very easy to get frustrated and angry. And when you do that, you start seeing the other person as the enemy. And that's the wrong attitude. Because first and foremost, you need to see this other person as being made in the image and likeness of God. They are a child of God. And that means that when you're talking to them, Use their name. Look them in the eye. Smile. Show some teeth. American dentistry is great, so show that off. <laughs> and also, agree as much as you possibly can. If somebody makes a point you agree with, nod. Go, mm-hmm. Build some common ground that you can then use to then move the conversation forward. It's very rare that you'll ever find somebody that you completely disagree with on everything. <laughs> it's also not a contest. You're not here to win. You're here to share some truth that you hope will benefit this person. And if, if you're not there for that purpose, I would say don't even try apologetics. Keep your mouth shut, because you'll probably do more harm than good. Unless you really care about this person and you want the best for them, it's gonna end in a fight. Because we don't just wanna be right. We wanna draw people closer to Jesus. We don't just want to win an argument. We want to win a soul. And actually, one of my friends, she demonstrates this really well. Her name's Joy. And a while back, I had moved into an area and the Jehovah's Witnesses came by. And I wrote up what happened on my blog, restlesspilgrim.net. And Joy and I were in a Bible study and I was just talking about it. And she said, yeah, I don't think I'd really want to wade into all that with them. And she told me what she does. And this is just wonderful. She says that when they turn up, she, she says, I think it's so great that you care so much about your faith that you want to come and share it with other people. Now, I should let you know, I'm Catholic and I really love it, so I don't think it'll be the best use of your time. But it's really hot out here, so would you like to take some water with you as you go? Now, what's great about that is she identified that she was Catholic and she treated them with dignity. If you've ever done anything door to door, you know you get called a lot of names, can have a lot of doors slammed in your face. And here, they met a Catholic and they were treated with kindness. Now, I do have some friends who say, I'm not into all this softly, softly stuff. You just gotta tell people how it is. Honestly, I think that's just an excuse to be obnoxious. Because by being aggressive, you might prove more than you expect. You might actually prove a particular doctrine of Christianity or Catholicism but you might also prove to the person who was listening that Catholics are mean, nasty jerks. All you did was take one obstacle that they had to the faith, you removed it, and now added a new one. You added some more emotional, emotional baggage. You just proved that Catholics are jerks. We want to demolish arguments, not people. Remember that quotation from St. Peter, when he says, when you give your answer, do it with gentleness and respect. And scripture says again and again about what the tongue can do, how it can either soothe and calm and bring life or bring destruction. Because the manner in which you speak, how you make somebody feel, they will remember that long after 
whatever particular words or whatever particular argument you used. And the other person might say something that you find offensive. They might say something about Jesus or Mary or the Eucharist or the Pope, you, the, it doesn't matter. You take a breath, take a beat, you ask the Holy Spirit for help. And the image that I have in my mind is actually one of my earliest memories of childhood, a book that my mother used to read me. Uh, it was one of the stories from Aesop's Fables. I just wanted to, to read it because I think this really sums up what evangelism and apologetics, when it's done right, this is what it should be like. The wind and the sun were disputing which was the stronger, when they saw a traveller coming down the road. And the sun said, I see a way to decide our dispute. Whichever of us can cause the traveller to take off his cloak shall be regarded as the stronger. You begin. So the sun retired behind a cloud, and the wind began to blow as hard as it could upon the traveller. But the harder it blew, the more closely did the traveller wrap his cloak around him, till at last the wind gave up. Then the sun came out and shone in all his glory upon the traveller, who soon found it too hot to walk, and so he took his cloak off and carried on his way. That's what it should be like. Because when we try and force somebody to our point of view, what happens? They get defensive. Exactly, they'll just resist all the more. We attack, they defend. Gentleness, kindness, persuasion, joy. These are very often much more effective tools than just sheer force of argument. We simply need to shine, show the beauty of Christianity, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of his church. What was principle number one? Listen. Principle number two. Good. Principle number three. Calm. Principle number four. Admit when you don't know the answer. The big fear that everyone has when they think about talking to somebody about their belief in God, their faith in Christ, they're afraid that they're going to be asked a question to which they don't know the answer. That's fine. When that happens, you can say to somebody, you know what, that's a really good question. I don't know how to answer that offhand. Can I get back to you about that? And then go and find out. And you can go and look for answers with confidence because trust me, there is not a single objection that the Catholic Church has not had over the years. There are answers out there. And when you respond in this way, you're demonstrating humility because you're saying that you don't know all of the answers. And you're also showing that you value truth more than simply your own position. And trust me, it works out far better than just trying to wing it and fluff an answer. Principle number five, address emotional objections. Everybody, address emotional objections. Now include this because we often like to think that people's objections to the faith are always intellectual and very often they're not. They're based on bad experiences, a bad experience with a DRE, a bad experience with their youth minister, a bad experience with their priest. You might be discussing the morality of abortion. The person you're speaking to might have had one. And in fact, I would say never speak about any moral issue any differently than you would if the person you're speaking to had been personally involved. It'll, 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 it'll force you to choose your words very carefully. But the main point I want to make here is that this is where empathy comes in. Because 
I know a lot of people who have been very poorly treated by Christians and by the church. And you can't be a Catholic in recent years without having heard the sex scandals being brought up again and again. And before I jump into my apologetics mode, before I point out that there's been great reform in the church, uh, I've experienced it myself in terms of all of the hoops you have to jump through in order to work with anybody who's remotely um, vulnerable. And before you point out that it's just a few bad priests don't undermine the truth of Christianity or the church, before you do any of that, you can say that what happened was terrible. And you, you can experience that emotion with the person who's bringing up this objection, because they're not just bringing it up just to be mean, they're bringing it up because it's really embarrassing. What was principle number one? Listen. Principle number two. Ask <laughs> I love this, making a civil war. Principle number three. Calm. Principle number five. I'll choose shorter titles next time. Principle number six, know when to step away. Everybody, know when to step away. It's really important to recognize when you've reached an impasse or when you're just going around in circles, particularly on social media. The number of times it is 3 a.m. I really should sleep, but this jerk just doesn't understand my point. Our job is to plant seeds and then sometimes step away. And sometimes that's really hard because my pride wants me to take this home. Sometimes we have to step away. And I'd actually say you can do it very gracefully and you can even do it invitationally. Uh, I remember having lunch with somebody and we, we went through the whole gamut of moral, uh, moral objections that he had to things in the Catholic Church, basis of Christianity, the Catholic Church in particular. And as we were leaving, I asked him, because he brought up a lot of questions about the reliability of the New Testament. I said, have you read a book on the New Testament, on why we know that it's reliable? And if not, if I gave you a book, would you read it? And he said, yeah. And so that's how we parted. I planted a seed. And it might be my involvement further down the line, but it might be somebody else's. But sometimes... Again, remember what I said, you can't just use apologetics just to argue somebody into the church. There's a lot of other factors and sometimes you just have to give some people time. Final principle, develop the habits of an apologist. And I'd say there are three main things here. Firstly, to grow in knowledge. That means spending time reading. If you're going to be talking to Protestants, you need to know your Bible. Read some church history. Grow in your faith. Always be learning. There's a Latin proverb, it's nemo dat quod non habit. You can't give what you don't have. You can't respond to questions if you don't know the answers. You know, you, you, can't, you can't explain stuff that you also just don't understand. And in the, in the handout at the very bottom, I list a bunch of books and a bunch of podcasts that I recommend if you want to grow in your knowledge of apologetics. But one thing I will say is don't delay until you think you're an expert. Because honestly, that means you'll never do anything. The people who I know, who know the faith the best, they're always telling me that they keep finding out stuff that they never knew before. <coughs> and that shouldn't surprise us, because Catholicism is kind of deep and it's about the very nature of reality, and reality can sometimes be complicated. So rather than waiting to become an expert, I would just encourage you to be a continuous learner. Several years ago, I was 
in mass, kneeling down, praying after communion. And I noticed that on the altar, there are three letters, I-H-S. I thought to myself, I've seen that on a lot of Catholic things over the years. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> and so, when mass was over, I Googled it and found out. And that's what I mean by being a continuous learner. When you discover things in your faith that you don't completely understand, go look for answers. If you want the answer to that one, you can go to restlesspilgrim.net and search IAHS. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Absolutely. So, grow in knowledge, but also improve your communication because, as I said, it's, it's not just about what you know, but how you communicate it. And I was just the best way of doing this is listen to Catholic Answers Live. You can get it on podcast, and particularly the shows where they're inviting non-Catholics to call in. So, why are you pro-choice? Why are you not Catholic? What part of Catholic morality do you reject? All those sorts of things. If you'd like to listen live on Monday at 3 p.m., we're having a Why Are You an Atheist show. There you go. <laughs> Not a plant at all. But what I would suggest is listen to the listen to the to the caller's question and then hit pause. And if you're in the car, pretend you're Jimmy Aiken. Grow an amazing beard and then respond to the question. And then after you've done that, hit play. See how an apologist does it. And not just what they say, but how they say it. Because you'll see they'll they'll be doing all the things that we've talked about tonight. They'll be trying to find common ground. They'll be asking questions and they'll be keeping calm, even if the person on the phone is a little bit irate. And lastly, foster prayer. You shouldn't be talking about apologetics more than you're talking to God. You should be cultivating those virtues of gentleness and compassion. All those things that St. Peter said that we need to, to display when we're giving an answer for the hope that we have within us. Because if we're not doing that, we'll probably cause more harm than good. My time is now up. And we've covered a lot of ground tonight. We've spoken about evangelization, apologetics, the different kinds of apologetics, the tools that we have, and a whole bunch of general principles to follow. But before we end, I would like to give you what I think is the best apologetic argument. The best argument for Jesus, Christianity, the church, is a saint. Because a non-believer can spend a lot of time arguing about philosophy, science, history, scripture. But it's very hard to argue with holiness. And for the church's history, 2,000 years, there have been men and women who have brought the world to Christ by loving God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength and loving their neighbors themselves. How can you argue with St. Damien of Molokai, who for 16 years ministered to lepers how can you argue with St. Maximilian Kolbe, who at Auschwitz took the place of another man so that he could go free and his wife would still have a husband and his son would still have a father? And how can you argue with St. Teresa of Calcutta, who for 50 years cared for the sick and dying on the streets of Calcutta? So with that in mind, I'd like to end with the words of St. Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes which looks compassion on his world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. So we're to end in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would equip us to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have within us and that you would form us into people who would give this with gentleness and respect. 
Lord, help us to become saints, to live lives of courageous virtue, to live a life less ordinary that would prompt others to ask questions and we can share them with them, the good news that they are loved by God and that you earnestly desire to be in relationship with them. Anoint us with your spirit, make us ambassadors for you in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.